The reading is taken from John 2, verses 1 to 12. Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother asked, said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Um, I wonder what you what you were discussing in your groups at the beginning. What what does glory look like? Does anyone is anyone willing to kind of give an example of what glory looks like? Anyone brave enough? Stuart Broad. Stuart Broad yeah, I've got a got a friend down here in a red jumper who doesn't agree with you, um, but uh, but yeah, Stuart Broad. Excellent. Anyone else? Glory. Sporting achievements are up there, aren't they? Something like Super Sunday at the Olympics. Four British gold medals, not just in the whole Olympics, but in one uh, amazing evening. Uh, Maybe for you, glory looks like four A's at A-level or uh, a first-class degree. Maybe it's a promotion at work. Uh, Maybe it's retirement after work. Uh, We often talk about a glorious summer's day, a glorious sunset, and all these ideas that, that we have have this, this kind of idea of, of something spectacular, something beyond the normal, uh, and often they're accompanied with this idea of it being done in, in full view to, to the praise um, of uh, the person who's done it. If Stuart Broad did what he did uh, on a school cricket pitch, it probably wouldn't have been such a big deal. Uh, but broadcast on television uh, around the world, uh, it achieves that greater sense of glory. But is that what John means when he says that Jesus showed his glory after the miracle that we just heard about? And the, the story we heard gives us a definition of what Jesus' glory is. See, at the beginning of John's gospel, he said, we have seen his glory. And instantly, my mind goes to those ideas of big public spectacle to the praise uh, of many people. But is that what it means? 
we're going to see four glimpses of what Jesus' glory looks like in our story. And the first glimpse we see of his glory is the glory of obeying his father over his family. Hear Jesus' words again that he said to his mother. When she says they have no more wine, he says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? In the King James Version, we get a a slightly more literal uh, translation which which helps to, to convey just the distance that he's providing. He says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Now, he's not being disrespectful. That's why they added the word dear to make sure we didn't make that mistake. But he's creating a distance between himself and his mother. That's not what you call your mother. Don't go home and say to your mother, woman, what do I have to do? Don't do it. That's, it's not wise. And actually, the phrase that he says when he says, why do you involve me? is only, other, only used five other times um, throughout the Gospels. Every other time it is used, it is used by a demon who is saying to Jesus, what have you got to do with us? You see, he is distancing himself from Mary. Not because he disrespects her, but because the only voice he listens to and obeys is his heavenly father's voice. You see, sometimes obeying what his father wants him to do coincides with what people ask. That's why he goes ahead and changes water into wine. But sometimes it doesn't. No one else, apart from the father, gets to determine what Jesus does with his time, not even his family. Think about those TV documentaries they do of of celebrities, you know, like the Wayne Rooney story or something like that. Now, what do they do? when they want to present information to you about that person that that no one else knows? Well, they go to the family, don't they? They go to the close friends. They go to the people who have special access because they really know what they're like. We only get to see what they choose to show. They know them really well. But that's not the case with Jesus. No one gets exclusive access, which means that everyone can get access. In fact, we see again and again throughout John's gospel, it's the outsider who gets access to Jesus. The Samaritan woman at the well, the lame man that no one else has noticed or helped, the man born blind. These are the people that get noticed. Do you see his glory? Not the the fading glory of some inaccessible celebrity who's here today and gone tomorrow. The glory of a God who makes himself available to anyone who comes to him in faith. But we may still wonder, would would he notice me? We we may still think, what what if he rejects me, though? When I was um, much younger, uh, a minor Christian celebrity came to our church. This was very exciting for us. Uh, The singer Ishmael, does anyone ring a bell? Yes, one hand, thank you. Very minor. Um, and we were, we were there early. My dad um, was the curate. Uh, so we were there early for all the setup, of course. And um, my two older brothers went up to, to meet him. He was setting his stuff up. Uh, and I stayed at the back with my mum. It's very sweet. Um, because I was too scared. You know, kind of big, famous Christian celebrity that two of you know. Um, but I was, I was scared to approach him. You know, 
How much more with Jesus? The, the glory of the Father. How much more scary? How, how can we approach this man? What if, he, what if he laughs at us? Well, the second glimpse shows us why we can approach him. And it's the glory of the small over the spectacular. John tells us at the end of the story, uh, verse 11, that this was the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. This was the launch of his ministry, uh, as far as John's gospel is concerned. Now, what do you think you would do? You have this word of God from all eternity. He's here in human flesh. How do you launch him? Publicity, flyers, posters, TV spots, Facebook page, website, maybe a few teaser videos, you know, look, Jesus kind of approaching jars of water, what's he going to do? Where would you think of hosting it? I mean, this guy's big, isn't he? Some, somewhere central, like the capital city, uh, maybe some, uh, somewhere it's easy to get access to, good parking, definitely not Oxford. What does Jesus do? The first of his miraculous signs, the launch of his ministry. He goes to a wedding, possibly a, a family friend, it's near Nazareth, in Cana, uh, a small village, not a big place, only mentioned three times, twice in this story, um, and once at the end of John's Gospel, Nathaniel, one of his disciples, comes from there. No big deal, not a big place. And who sees what happens? A few servants and his disciples. That's it. And at the end of the wedding and all the festivities, everyone goes home. They don't really know what has happened. And after that, Jesus goes home. Not exactly the the big launch to a global ministry, is it? But this shows us his glory. Matthew Henry, a Bible commentator, says this, Christ does great things and marvelous without noise, works manifest changes in a hidden way. And that is really good news. You see, not many of us are the big global celebrities. Not many of us are going to set the world on fire. But it's the people that go unnoticed by the world, the places that are too small for anyone else to bother with, the events which are only really important to a small group of people, where Jesus decides to show his glory. And if it was any other way, would he ever have noticed us? But we so easily think every other way, don't we? The world pushes us to think every other way. The world says, if you go to this school, if you go to this university, if you get this qualification, if you get this job, if you have this house, if you go for this holiday, you will have glory. People will admire and love and respect you. And that gets into the church. Well, we're a big church in Oxford. Surely God's going to do something big with us. Well, look at all the qualifications we have. Surely God is going to do something significant with us. Well, look at the events we're putting on. Surely God is going to come to that. And all the time, Jesus is in Cana of Galilee, doing small things in a hidden way. Sorry, doing great things in a hidden way. 
The question is not, is this big enough and impressive enough to get God's notice? The question is, is Jesus here? That's what transforms Cana of Galilee. And the second question follows for us. We're followers of Jesus. Are we willing to follow him in this? Doing our good deeds in a small, hidden way. Well, those kind of thoughts can humble us. They can expose our failures to think rightly. Uh, they may even discourage us. But the third glimpse of God's glory in Christ is an encouragement. We see this when we see Jesus providing fullness in place of failure. The, the whole story is set up at the beginning by Mary's observation. She comes and says, I've got no more wine. Well, it doesn't strike us as a, a big problem. The wedding will just finish early. I mean, everyone can go home. That's, that's all. Uh, but actually, it is a big deal. Um, the bridegroom was expected to provide enough wine to have a proper wedding, which is about a week. And if he doesn't, well, he dishonors the woman that he's marrying. He dishonors her family. They could sue him, in fact. It's a big deal. Now, maybe the guy's just too poor. Maybe he doesn't have a lot of money. Maybe some people have turned up that he wasn't expecting or hadn't replied to the invitation. Maybe he did just mess up badly. And our lives are marked by that kind of thing, aren't they? Sometimes it's just our fault. We screw up. Sometimes circumstances just conspire against us. Sometimes, even though we've done everything we can, it's just not enough. Over and over again, in, in small ways and in big ways, life has this way of saying, failed, failed, failed. What does God do with people like that? Well, we see what Jesus did. In the place of that man's failure, he provides overwhelming fullness. Not just enough wine to get them by, but bucket loads. And not just, well, this will do, because I don't really know anyway, but the best. And who gets the credit for all of this? The bridegroom. The guy who got it wrong in the first place. Does he deserve it? No. But he gets the credit because of Jesus' grace. See, this is, this is the glory that John spoke of right at the beginning of his gospel. We have seen his glory. The glory of a God full of grace and truth. I don't know what your most recent failure is. But when we see Jesus' glory... We see a man who says, come to me, and I can deal with that. And what he's doing, he's not just giving them a great party, although he does do that, and they have a great time. He's saying, actually, I'm the one you've been waiting for for a long time. Over and over in the, in the Old Testament, there are these images of, of God coming as the bridegroom uh, to rescue and marry his bride, his people. Over and over again, the, the joy of what God does is pictured in terms of a, a feast where wine flows in abundance. See, Jesus isn't just kind of doing a good thing for a small group of people at, at one time. He's saying, I'm the one that you've been waiting for 
this whole time. And that brings us to our fourth and final glimpse of his glory. And it's the glory of waiting over rushing. My time has not yet come, Jesus says. Now, he still does a great miracle, still does something that would be the pinnacle of anyone's life. But he says, my time has not yet come. This isn't the full event. This isn't the whole movie. This is the trailer. This is Jesus' way of saying, keep watching Keep waiting, keep looking at what I'm doing, keep looking at who I am, keep looking at how I act with people. He's saying, keep looking for my glory. As we read through John's gospel, the the point is that we're we're seeing his glory. It doesn't all come in one go, but throughout John's gospel, we're waiting for his hour to come. And when it does come, It's not what we might expect if we've picked up the world's way of thinking of glory. Will we wait? So often we want the best thing now, don't we? Books entitled Your Best Life Now tend to sell better than your best life sometime, hopefully, in the future. We want results, we want answers, we want solutions now. Or we want to stay with the good thing that we have because, you know, it's great and we'd love to stay here and are unwilling to move on to the glory that is to come. But Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Yeah, this is great. There's more to come though. So John concludes, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. We've seen Jesus' glory by seeing what he's done. It's not the glory that the world expects. It's not the glory that the world pursues. And it's not the glory that the world will call us to expect or pursue. In fact, it's something that most of the people there at the time completely missed. But we've seen it. And the question now is, Will we put our faith in him as those disciples did? Will we seek his glory? Or will we continue to pursue the fading pleasures that the world offers? I've got a question first. Um, In fact, I've got two questions. My privilege, since I'm sitting here, I get to ask questions first. First, sometimes uh, you'll hear this passage used to say, um, you know, that if there's an issue in our lives, or the way we're living, or whatever it might be, or, or something we're facing, that Jesus can transform it. We can pray to Jesus, and in a heartbeat, he'll transform it. In the way that he changed water into wine, so it is. He comes into our life, and he can change this into this. Is that how we're to understand how the Christian life of change happens? Is this normative for us in that way? Or would that be a slight misreading of this? Um, so I think, I think there's that possibility because Jesus does that. And um, we see again and again through the Gospels, he, um, 
he heals people instantly, many times. Um, so, so the possibility of God doing something which transforms a, a struggle or a, a physical problem or an emotional struggle in our lives, um, the possibility is always there. Um, at the same time, he says, my, my time has not yet come. Uh, and so in that sense, this is, not the, this is not the definitive thing that Jesus does. Um, his disciples, we, we follow them throughout John's gospel. If you look, you know, you see here at the end it says his disciples put their faith in him. Um, you, you kind of carry on reading through John's gospel and you think, well, goodness, these guys haven't got it at all. Um, and then they seem to get it a little bit more and then you get to the Last Supper and they're completely befuddled as to what's going on and have no idea. And you think, they still haven't got it. And they get a little bit more and then they betray it. So, so at the same time as having these kind of instances of God's transformation um, in, a, in, a, in an instance, uh, you, you have at the same time this other narrative of, of people close to Jesus who, um, who had not changed instantly you know, they're, they're growing and, and understanding and they kind of learn a bit and then they fall back a bit and they learn it and they fall back a bit. Uh, and so I'd say you have both these things uh, going on with each other. Um, and so I'd say that's an encouragement both ways for, for those of us who are expecting some kind of instant transformation. There's an encouragement that God also works in this slow, up-and-down, gradual way. Um, for those of us who have been waiting an awful long time, um, there's also the encouragement that in an instant God can do something. Um, but the key thing is to hold on to both of those things um, at the same time uh, and to trust in what God is doing um, and not just maybe what he wants us, or what we would like him to do. It would be nice if he did everything just like that, but mm. that's not always what happens. Mm. Thanks, uh, Johnny. Um, okay, let me read uh, one or two of these. Um, Jesus does keep a low profile at Cana. Is that so he can make a dramatic gesture clearing the temple a few days later? And uh, that's in the second half of John 2. Um, possibly. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'd say just, uh, just quickly reading that, that passage which follows immediately. Um, Jesus obviously does go to Jerusalem many times in John's Gospel, uh, so he doesn't stay away from the limelight. He doesn't stay away from um, the kind of super high-flying, clever people. Um, so he's not, a, he's not afraid of that. Uh, I'd say with the, the cleansing of the temple, verse 18 seems to me pretty instructive. It's, the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you do to show us uh, your authority to do all of this stuff? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So even whether it's changing water into wine, whether it's um, cleansing the temple and causing a massive chaos, his, his focus is, uh, my time has not yet come. He's always saying, you know, the thing that, that proves everything that I'm doing, the thing that shows you who I am, the things that shows you what I'm doing is when I die and I'm raised again in three days. And so the cleansing of the temple 
it's, it's, not a, it's not a publicity stunt just to kind of get people's attention, but it's a deliberate act to say, um, I'm doing something new, uh, and the proof of that will come at my death and resurrection. Um, even in, in the story, there's um, the changing water into wine. There are suggestions that what Jesus is doing by changing ceremonial washing jars that were used for religious purposes, by changing that into wine, he's saying the old way of doing things um, doesn't really apply anymore. The, the way to get purified now is through Jesus Christ. It's not through ritual washing. Um, and the new way of doing things is, is qualitatively different. It, it, is, it is superior to what has gone before. And I think you get that in the cleansing of the temple much more clearly as well. Um, so, so yes, it's, it's more than a publicity stunt in the cleansing of the temple, but it obviously grabs people's attention in a way that the miracle at uh, Cana and Galilee didn't mm. quite so much. So I think this is a related question, but it's, let me ask it anyway. Um, why does Jesus say, my time has not yet come, and then go ahead and perform the miracle anyway? And the person who's written this says, I know he's referring to something different, but why bother saying it at all in this context? Yeah, Jesus says a lot of confusing things um, in John's Gospel. Um, and just to make it worse, um, if, you turn, if you turn to chapter 7, if you want to, um, you, get, you get the same thing again. Uh, he is in Galilee, and the, a big feast is coming up. Uh, feast of Tabernacles is coming up, and his brothers this time. So again, interestingly, it's his family members. And they say to him, look, why are you staying here in the, in the backwaters? Why don't you go to Jerusalem? Uh, and they say, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Interestingly, exactly the way the world thinks of glory. What's the point of staying around in the sticks when you could do something awesome and spectacular and get loads of followers? Um, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And the reason his brothers say this, it says in verse 5, is they don't believe in him. It's really interesting. So, so they're saying, look, go. Go and do something amazing and great. And they're just basically taking the mickey because they think he's a, he's a joke. And Jesus says, no, the, the time for me has not yet come. You go to the feast. I am not going up to the feast. Verse 8. Verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also. You think... <laughs> Is he just being difficult? You know, is this kind of... I didn't say it in my... Is this kind of sulky teenage Jesus? Like, if you tell me what to do, there is no way I'm going to do it. And I, I think the point, the point is that he, he's under his own... He's under his father's authority. That's, that's the point in, in chapter 2, and I, it's the point in chapter 7. I think it's the point throughout John's Gospel that... Jesus acts and does what his father wants him to do when his father wants him to do it, in the way that his father wants him to do it, not necessarily in the way that his family expects, not necessarily in the way that, uh, say, Nicodemus, when he meets Jesus, might expect. Um, and I think, I think the kind of defining verse comes at the end of, end of chapter 2. Um, sorry to flick you around. Jesus didn't entrust himself to people because he knew all about them. There's, there's this, kind of, this kind of distrust of people and their agendas which, which drives Jesus. He, he trusts his father, 
and he knows that what his father says is, is always right. And so he goes, he goes with that, even though his brothers say go and he says no, and then he goes. You know, even though it makes him maybe look silly, maybe it makes him look duplicitous, um, he, he's doing what his father wants him to do. Uh, and I think that's, A, that's encouraging for us, because we don't always do what our Heavenly Father wants us to do. And it's good to know that we have a Savior who, who has done that for us. Um, but it's also an encouragement when the world just is pushing us and saying, um, you know, if you're a Christian, why don't you? If you're this, why don't you? And, and the only voice that we need to listen to is, is the voice of, of God the Father, um, not the voice of the world. Sorry, that's a long explanation. No, Johnny, thank you. So just, just to be clear, so when he says, my time has not yet come, you're saying he's speaking about his, ultimately his death, the, the, the real sort of eternal reason why he came to earth. And yet signs like Cana and the other ones we're going to see through John's Gospel are what, little glimpses of the kingdom that he's going to die to bring in. Yeah, yeah. And you, and you see in the other, the other Gospels, don't you, this kind of... Um, Sometimes the disciples kind of expecting a certain way he'll do things. When he rebukes Peter, Peter says he's the Messiah, and then he says, I'm going to suffer and die, and Peter's like, "Uh, no, you're not. And he says, no, actually, you're wrong. Peter's got this wrong idea of of glory, Um, and and so he he does the miracles to show what the kingdom will look like um, and who he is, but the way that the kingdom comes in is not the kind of glorious, triumphant, smashing up of all your enemies and all that kind of stuff that the world does and kind of smash other people. It's suffering and dying and being raised to life again. Um, and that, that is how the kingdom comes. And so you've got this kind of, um, yeah, in one sense, you could say maybe John's gospel is a, is a big kind of cinematic trailer for Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and everything is, is pointing us towards that and preparing us for that moment. Thank you, Johnny. And uh, finally, what, what does John 2, if anything, does it have to say to the idea of the miraculous today? Uh, whether we should expect it? Uh, if so, again, is it, is it, would it be a normative thing? Or is it a, does John 2 have anything to say? Um, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to push you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Clarify. Um, Yes, the, the, the kingdom of God is going to be qualitatively different. Um, and so there is a, a newness of, of life and joy. Um, it's, it's striking, this miracle. It's not someone who is sick. It's not someone who has died. Uh, it, it's not that. It's, it's a wedding, where they've run out of wine. It's not a kind of life-ender, really. I mean, yes, the guy might get sued, but it's, it's very different from all the other miracles, isn't it, where you've got people in an obvious, real, drastic need. And there's something about it which just shows, uh, as Paul says in Romans, that the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. There is an abundance of joy. And, and there's that, that newness of joy and and I think that, that is a miraculous thing. I think there are, um, it, it is the, the acting of God in history to do things um, that are not normal. 
Um, but again, at the same time, uh, life goes on. I think there are enough of us here who are suffering or have suffered in many ways to know that, uh, that the miraculous doesn't always happen. Um, that people don't always get raised from the dead. And so we've got to hold those things together. And Christians are going to fall along the line. You know, there are going to be people who, are, who will expect um, miracles very often because of the evidence we have in, in the New Testament. There will be those who, who will say that that's not a feature of the Christian life. Um, I would say, read the Scripture, <laughs> you know, commit to what you, um, you read there and understand of it, and, um, and pray for God's kingdom to come. But, but ultimately, as, as great as this life could be, and as transformative as things we experience in this life might be, and as great as this event was for all the people who were there, um, their life continued. They're all dead. They're still waiting for the ultimate coming of God's kingdom. Uh, and so, yes, you know, read the scripture, find out where you are on that spectrum um, according to what you read um, and ultimately pray that Jesus would come back because that's when, that's when it's all good.